I think uh, they've turned the mics on, so let's get going. Thank you guys all very much for coming out this morning uh, for the beginning of this uh, energy and the environment uh, vertical, I suppose. There are going to be a number of great sessions here today. My name is Russell Gold. I'm a senior energy writer with the Wall Street Journal. I live here in Austin, uh, covering mostly uh, U.S. Uh, energy scene. And uh, we're going to have a, a great conversation. So first of all, let me just take care of a little housekeeping. Um, and the first is just to welcome everyone here to the Texas Tribune Festival, the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival, which is, uh, seems like it's been growing by leaps and bounds every year. Uh, here in Energy and the Environment, after us, we're going to be talking about energy prices and the impact on the state. Um, after us, there's going to be a panel on renewables, uh, followed by uh, Boone Pickens will be here being interviewed by Joe Nocera. Um, and I mean, I can tell you that one of my favorite books on, uh, that I've ever read is a collection of um, uh, essays called uh, Texas Bidness. And Joe Nocera has about a third of the essays, so it's going to be a real treat to hear him interview Boone Pickens, who, as I'm sure most of you know, is, is quite a character and has been very involved uh, in the energy scene here in Texas for many years. Uh, then there'll be lunch on the mall, and after lunch there'll be sessions on the grid. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech will be down here if you don't know who she is. She's, that will definitely be a session worth attending. Um, she's a climate scientist. Uh, an evangelical Christian, which is important because she marries the two together in, in a way that nobody else is doing right now. It's fascinating. Uh, and then they'll, we'll wrap up today talking about water. Um, and there'll be a reception at the AT&T Center at the end of the day. And uh, apparently shuttles running all throughout campus to get you where you want to go if you want to pull yourself away from energy and environment and go see one of the other, uh, uh, one of the other sessions. Um, so let's talk about, we've got a great panel here today. Um, let me start, I guess, uh, from my left. Uh, representative Drew Darby, Chairman of Energy Resources uh, and a state representative, I should say, from San Angelo. Uh, former city councilman from yes. San Angelo also? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, and also a author of, I think, one of the most high-profile bills of the last session, which was the, the Denton Fracking Bill, yes. uh, which established that the state had primacy over uh, local governments um, when it came to regulating fracking. Uh, next to him is uh, State Representative Chris Patty. Uh, from Marshall, uh, the vice chair of the energy resources. So we have, we have sort of the, we, we have energy resources covered today. Um, so, and if that wasn't enough, uh, you have a weekday radio show, correct, in Marshall? I, I do when I'm, when I'm home. When you're home, okay. <laughs> my, my real job, as I describe it, is I'm in the radio business. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And, and, I, and I play around on the radio a little bit for fun, silly. So I should say, right, you're also the general manager of this station. Sure. Um, uh, next to Representative Patty, we have uh, Munay Ugel, who, and you are the Senior Vice President and Research Director of the Dallas uh, Federal Reserve Bank. That's right. Um, and just to, to sort of sing your praises for a second, you're also past president of both the International Association of Energy <coughs> Economics and the U.S. Association of Energy Economics. So, Herding cats. <laughs> uh, moving down, we have Tom Curra, who is the Chief Revenue Estimator for the Texas Comptroller which means he gets to tell these two how much they can spend um, every two years. Uh, and you've been with the Comptroller's Office since 1999. Uh, and you became Chief Revenue Officer in November 2014, which means this is your, I guess this is your second time, or second time through with telling That's the, correct. the legislature how much. Uh, and then finally we have uh, Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton. Um, you were elected to that position in 2014, and I saw from your bio you were the first 
petroleum engineer to serve as a railroad commissioner for 50 years? I'm the first professional engineer to serve in 50 years. Professional, yes, so including uh, yeah, any, any, kind any, any kind of engineer. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and you also uh, own a company, founded a company, um, which uh, handles engineering and, and technology um, in the oil and petrochemical fields. Yes, and your family owns 100,000 Legos. I saw that's, your bio. That is the most interesting thing, <laughs> yes. Sir. Okay, so let's, let's start off um, talking about the Texas economy and, and energy and how it's affected it. So, Manet, I'm going to start with you. Um, this is your, your bailiwick. So I was looking at Dallas Fed statistics, and I was really struck. Um, you have something called the, um, uh, the business cycle index, where you measure in different cities how, whether the economy is growing, job creation, et cetera. Uh, Houston appears to be contracting this year, the economy. Uh, and a lot of the, 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 the valley appears to be contracting. The only real strong growth was here in Austin and, and in Dallas. So my question is, it, because of these lower prices, because of all the bankruptcies and the oil patch and, and the layoffs, is Texas in a recession right now? No. No. Texas is not in a recession. Um, so the first so you're right. If you look at year-to-date um, numbers, Houston is, has still lost about 20,000 jobs, I think, for okay. the year. And of course, Midland, Odessa. Um, and um, so those areas that are deep steeped into the oil business are hurting. Okay. But the good news is we just got new numbers for um, August, mm -hmm. and Houston actually had positive growth in August. Okay. So added jobs in August. It didn't you know, erase all the negatives, obviously. But do we know whether these are energy jobs or do you differentiate? They're not energy jobs. They're not energy jobs, no. okay. They're not energy jobs. So but other sectors of Houston are doing like medical? Right, okay. right. Well, so in last, so let me just go back a little bit. Sure. So Houston and the, the Valley and Texas, we were booming in 2014. We added more than 400,000 jobs and we grew about 3.8%. That's really high rate of growth. Then oil prices collapsed and we started weakening. But we did go into recession. We still added about 150, 160,000 jobs. And we grew about 1.3%, I think. Then the first quarter of this year was really brutal. Okay. So the first quarter, we actually have benchmark numbers. We had negative growth for Texas overall. Okay. But that was through March and that has come back. So. Growth has come back in term. It's weak. It's still pretty weak. You know, year to date, I think we added only about ugh, let me think, sixty thousand jobs. The technical definition of a recession is two quarters of negative growth. Right? That's sort of yeah, the okay. popular <laughs> definition. <laughs> but but you're the economist. I'm just uh, <laughs> um, so we we did have one quarter of negative growth. We had, this is this employment. We're talking about employment. Employment. Okay. Right. Okay. So we've had some negative. Um, we had a quarter of negative GDP growth as well, maybe two quarters. But but. We're looking at employment, um, and we only had one quarter of negative growth, and then we came back. So we are not in recession, None. and we're expecting actually us to sort of grow a lot faster in the year toward you know the second half. Well, we're past the second half, but you know last. We're last a much more plus. economically diverse state than we were 20 years ago. But Definitely. when oil prices go from $100 down to 40, <coughs> we still feel it very significantly. We do feel it. Things are different. We are both in terms of employment and both in terms of output. Oil and gas is smaller, so Texas is very diverse. And you know, some areas, even Houston, I mean, look at Houston. Houston did not collapse with this huge collapse in oil prices. It still did pretty okay, and it's coming back. So 
we're pretty resilient, and we are quite a bit different than it was last last time that this right. happened. One other point, though, this, the situation is a little bit different too, because remember in the 80s we had um, the SNL crisis, mm -hmm. we had a uh, change in tax law, which sort of changed how commercial buildings were um, uh, taxed and so on. Those were all came at the same time. Mm -hmm. So right now we just have the oil price that's sort of. The well, banking sector is in really good shape here. Right, Texas. right, and that's the big. That's a, yeah. that is the big difference. The yeah. Last time we went through this in the mid '80s, the banking sector pretty much collapsed yeah. on us. Yeah. Um, so let's transition from uh, that uh, overview of where the economy is doing uh, to to Tom Kura, uh, and let's figure out what does that mean for how much money is being generated. So, uh, real quickly, explain to people who don't know. In a couple months, you have to give the biennial, biennial revenue estimation. Estimate. 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 Uh, <laughs> explain what that is and, and also sort of walk us through what happened in the last two years with how much money uh, the state's bringing in from oil and gas right now. So, um, yeah, we, our office produces what's called biennial revenue estimate, the BRE, uh, before each legislative session. So it's typically they start on a, the second Tuesday in January. We produce that estimate on that, the Monday prior to that, you know, the day before they convene. So. We'll be telling you them. We want to give them a lot of time to right, react to right, it, right? Well, we want to have the most up-to-date data available so we can give them the best estimate possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we've seen substantial declines in, in severance tax revenue in our natural gas production tax, <coughs> oil production tax. Um, you know, uh, we saw... Your estimate was that the state would collect $5.8 billion for the biennium. For the biennium, 2016 yeah, right. and 2017. And, and I can tell you we, in 16, which we just, we closed the books on fiscal 16 at the end of August, um, those two, the natural gas production tax, oil production tax combined were about 2.3 billion. So what it's, you, it's what like- What were you expecting? Uh, more than that. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, what I'm trying to do is find out how- So let me, let me, yeah, yeah and let me kind of walk through, because these, okay. the, these are the direct effects on the budget. Yes. Um, and so, I think it's important to remember we have we've had substantial declines in revenue, billions of dollars in severance tax revenue from 14 to 15 to 16, um, and so uh, a lot of people assume that means well there's a lot less revenue for the legislature to spend. But it's important to keep in mind that um, because of the collapse in oil pr in prices in, in the 1980s, uh, the Texas voters approved a constitutional amendment in 1987 that said starting in 1989 um, all uh, severance tax revenue above what we collected in 1987, 75% of that would go to the rainy day fund. Right. So we didn't put a lot of money in the rainy day fund until 2000, 2001, and it started ramping up, and now, you know, in November, we'll have more than $10 billion in that rainy day fund. But the, the important thing to keep in mind here is when oil and natural gas production tax revenue comes in below estimate or way above estimate, that doesn't directly affect the bottom line for what the legislature has to spend for general purpose spending. Um, very much because only 25% of that amount above what we collected in 1987 is actually going to the amount to the revenue available for them to spend, you know, under some discretion. Now, I, one side note there: uh, starting a couple years ago, we now split that uh, money that was going to the rainy day fund 50/50 between the rainy day fund and the state highway fund. But again, it's allocated to a place that's not available for them for general purpose spending. So, the direct impact is not that great on revenues. However, when we see reduced activity in the oil and gas industry, that affects other taxes that do hit the bottom mm -hmm. line. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, less people buying trucks, right. less people. So, you know, mo shopping. motor vehicle yeah. sales tax will mm -hmm. be lower. Um, 
Franchise tax, the state's business tax will be lower when those companies are bringing in less revenue. It's our motor fuels taxes because, you know, the trucks that buy a lot of diesel aren't, there aren't as many of them out there moving things around. Um, but most importantly, it hits our sales tax because those companies purchase goods, the equipment that they have to pay sales tax on. And so when we go from more than 900 rigs active to fewer than 200, as we did, um, that's a lot of reduced activity and a lot of reduced spending in that industry and it hits our sales tax. And so we saw declines in our overall revenue, including sales tax. Right from 15 to 16. So two years ago, not the current biennium, the previous biennium, mm -hmm. the state brought in almost $10 billion right. in oil and gas taxing. Right. Are we ever, in, and in the foreseeable future, gonna return to that kind of level of tax generation? Well, I, I don't think you should expect us to project that in the next biennium. <laughs> 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 All right. You know, and before I go on, I, I forgot to mention, we will be having questions towards the end of the session, so please, Think about the questions you want to ask. Um, I neglected to mention that. I apologize. Okay, so let's now, now that we have a sense of where the Texas economy is, how much money we're bringing in or how much less than we were, um, let, let's turn to, to our elected officials. Um, Representative Darby, talk a little about the rainy day fund. Is it raining? Do you, do, do you expect it to be raining this session so that you then begin pulling out substantial money or will you try to, to, to live within what, what the... Uh, the tax uh, base is bringing in. Well, you know, when I walked over this morning, I felt like it was raining. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but I'm, I'm from San Angelo, and we don't have 90% humidity in San Angelo. I'm from Houston, I uh, feel right at home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it sure feels like it's raining outside. Um, the reality is we created that fund to carry us through the bumps and uh, the peaks and the valleys of our economy, mm -hmm. and, and certainly, we have a growing state, we have growing needs, uh, we have to uh, provide for uh, growing public schools, uh, higher education. Uh, obviously, you mentioned, uh, Tom mentioned, uh, dedication of, of sales tax revenue for our roads. Nobody questions that we need roads here in Texas. What that did was, in effect, put a revenue cap on sales taxes, so uh, anything over 28 and a a half billion dollars now goes into the transportation fund, which means that I have uh, up to five billion dollars of biennium less to spend on schools, mm -hmm. uh, healthcare, uh, prisons, uh, the, the, the things that government is about. And so um, this will be a session where, and Tom didn't uh, carry it on forward, but the reality is we're starting with less money than we had in the last in the last biennium. We will have uh, some growth in revenue, but the reality is uh, we've kind of taken a lot of the options off the table that we can deal with some of these issues. Uh, we've reduced our general revenue dedicated accounts that can be used for certification purposes. Uh, it, that, that has always been a, a way to, to spend on the priorities of Texas without actually spending the money in those accounts. So. Uh, Less money, but we probably have, what, 500,000 more Texans yeah. uh, at the start of this biennium than we did the last And biennium. we have 85,000 new kiddos in our schools each year. That's a Fort Worth ISD each year growing. And uh, so uh, how do we provide for that? And, and uh, some total, when you look at our Medicaid, our continuing rising health care costs, um, uh, needs in our prisons, Obviously, I'm, I believe that my, our foster care system is broke, our CPS system is broke. Uh, we're gonna need to address that. When you look at 
all those rising needs, the reality is we'll have $5 billion, approximately $5 billion less to spend on those priorities in the next session. So, um, Representative Patty, let me bring you in here. Um, I've been in Texas 20 years. I've now seen the full boom and bust cycle of, of the Texas economy, of the oil and gas economy. Um, does this make you nervous what you're hearing? We were talking about a, an oil and gas sector which is, is much smaller, much less robust than it was two years ago, but yet so much of the discretionary spending, um, because there's so, there's so little discretionary spending in the budget, and yet you have this one tax which can go up or down by $4 billion every biennium. Does this make you nervous? Is there anything that needs to be done to, uh, or, or anything you'd like to do to try to address this? Well, I mean, obviously it's concerning. I think it's concerning for all of us, and not only at the state level, but we see it in our districts. Mm -hmm. uh, I represent rural part of the state in East Texas that has mm -hmm. long been an oil and gas uh, producing area. Uh, you know, I represent one of the counties that's third largest producing, even in July numbers, natural gas in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously it has a huge impact, and you know, we've seen it at the state level, but now we're really starting to see it more and more at the local level and the effect it's having. As you see all these yards that are empty and you see uh, retail businesses that are going out. You see your local auto dealers that are uh, cutting back and, and not able to do as much as they were doing in, in your community, some of the largest supporters of your community. And so uh, we're really starting to see the effects of that and it's concerning. And, and uh, obviously uh, we know in our personal lives that it's always easier to budget when you have money mm -hmm. and that's going to be a challenge this time. And so while at the same time we all recognize, we, we seem to all agree that we have these needs, be it transportation, education, you can go right down the list. Uh, the problem is how do we pay for it and, and what do we have an appetite for as far as uh, making sure we meet those needs. Let me quickly add that the state of Texas, unlike the federal government, we have to balance our budget. Right. We can only spring, uh, spend what we bring in. So that will be balancing priorities versus the rep available revenue. Well, let me bring in uh, Commissioner Sittenham and um, give us a sense. Uh, the, 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 session, the legislature meets once every two years um, two years ago was a very different picture, than, oil and gas picture, than what it is today. In two years from now, what's oil and gas going to look like? Are we going to be back up to $60, $70, that healthy level that people have been talking about for two, three years? It doesn't seem to happen. What's your sense of where the industry is heading and where prices are heading? So your question is, in two years, if we were sitting on this stage two years from now, would we be talking about 60 to $70 oil? Well, exactly. <laughs> Will we still be in this sort of $40 and $50 world where, you know, Texas is kind of just kind of struggling? I mean, still producing, but still struggling along a little. Or will we be back in a, in a, a higher price environment where Texas, the taxes are coming in and the good times have returned? Well, you know, right before we came up here today, Manet and I were talking, and she said, in her line of work, you never put an oil price next to a date. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but that's her she, line of work. She demonstrated to me, well, she demonstrated to me that she's a very savvy politician. <laughs> Lucky for you, I am not. I'm an engineer. Uh, I will tell you, yeah, I believe in two years, absolutely, we'll be back above the $60 barrel range. Make the case. Why is that? Well, when you look at the fundamentals that we, we talk about in the energy business, which are around the world, what does it take to, to there's, there's capital deployment, what does it take to, to put money into the field and drill a new well, then there's operating costs. What does it take to actually get the oil out of the ground? We look at the fields of development around the world. Um, you know, it is hard to produce 93, 94 million barrels at these prices. There's a lot of countries that are struggling with that. And uh, you'll hear numbers like, hey, at, current, at $40 a barrel, we can only produce you know, around the world 70, 75 million barrels economically. Mm -hmm. So obviously that means prices either have to come up or people are going to have to cut back. Uh, you look at how much production has already come off the market. Uh, the United States, 
Our production's down 800,000 barrels a day, give or take, from where we were a year ago. Uh, other countries, Venezuela's down quite a bit. So countries around the world don't have the capital to deploy that's going to bring oil off the market. And while in the short term, spot prices are impossible to predict, sure. when you look at the long run, if I were to show you a graph of, of production and consumption around the world, pretty much on, on the whole, when production is over consumption, prices go down. Mm -hmm. When consumption's over production, prices go up. And we can see now the, the, the consumption continues to increase around the world. We went from 92 million to 93 million barrels a day this year on average. We're projecting 94, 95. So we're adding about a million barrels a day per year around the world. All the fundamentals say that the only way we can sustain is with increased oil prices. And you're hearing more and more uh, sub, uh, uh, kind of subtle moves around the world, things that don't necessarily directly affect oil prices. You know, for the first time in history, Saudi Arabia has a non-royal family oil minister, who, by the way, is a Texas A&M mechanical engineering grad. Now, while you might think I'm just shamelessly plugging the finest academic institution on the planet, <laughs> what I'm telling you is that they, you're seeing, they're, they're saying, we need to run this more like a business. Yeah. We have to get better returns out of this to sustain our social programs, to sustain our government. So around the world, all signs are it's going to point up. I think we've closed the oversupply uh, situation we were in a couple of years ago substantially. Once people can see that the oversupply has been corrected, prices will come back up. Um, one last thing I'll mention, you, know, you look at some of the big producing areas like Canada. When you talk about what does it take to produce oil out of the tar sands, it takes a lot more dollars than $40 a barrel. Their, their uh, tar sands operations up in, the, up in the Fort McMurray area are running at a, at a, at a best of break even, some of them running at a loss right now. You know, and what, uh, let me just pick up on that because th this, I think, comes right back to the Texas economy. One of the fascinating things that's happened the last two or three years is that it's become fairly clear that these big, really super <laughs> expensive projects, as you say, like the tar sands, the oil sands up, up in Canada, have become much less attractive. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, what has continued to attract capital are these wells that you can drill and get on production in six weeks and you know move on small you know smaller sort of drill 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 and what who happens to have those type of wells that type of geology is Texas well West let me Texas add to this so one of the questions we get a lot yeah. is so let's say oil prices come back mm -hmm. how do you know Ryan the activity is going to be in Texas people are paying more per acre for minerals in the Permian Basin than they've ever paid we're seeing 30 35 40 thousand dollars an acre for minerals right now mm -hmm. at the same time oil prices are half of what they were or almost half what they were just you know two years ago the reason is, just like you said, the $4 billion FPSO in Malaysia that takes five years to put new oil on the market is not near as attractive as an oil in West Texas that I can go in and just either recomplete or drill fresh and have new oil on the market in three months. Mm -hmm. I think that we're seeing a lot of companies say when oil prices do come back, this is the most attractive place to invest, which is obviously a positive sign for our economy. Um, let me shift the conversation a little. I want to get into a couple other uh, topics. One thing that I think has been very interesting, and, and, and this gets right at to the, the future of the, of the Texas economy, the future of the industry, um, is this question of how long does the oil age last? Um, I mean, if you were to say to me, well, in five years you're going to be driving in an electric car and internal combustion cars, I don't know. But in 50 years, I feel fairly confident I will be driving a car that's, that's probably not running on oil and gas. Uh, that just seems to be the trend where we're heading. So given that, given that the Securities and Exchange Commission just opened an investigation into the largest company in the state, ExxonMobil, about how they're accounting for their reserves, are they, should they be telling investors more, um, I, 
let, let's talk a little bit about this industry and the future of this industry that's so important to, to the economy. Um, uh, Representative Darby, I mean, is this too far in the future to think about? I mean, should we just be concentrating right now, as you say, on where do we get the money to fund CPS, or do we need to be doing more to be thinking about how do we transition to an era when maybe this economy, which has helped build the state, <coughs> or this industry, which has helped build the state, won't be uh, as much in demand? We need to be thinking about all of that, obviously. Uh, but the reality is, regardless of how that vehicle is propelled, mm -hmm. either by electricity or by fossil fuels, the composition of that vehicle is going to depend heavily upon the fossil fuels to, to make the dashboards, mm -hmm. the the tires, the, you know, all the composition of that vehicle, everybody in this room's got a cell phone. You attribute that to fossil fuels. That made that cell phone right. possible. The petrochemical uh, industry. The petrochemical are... industry is, is hugely critical uh, to every aspect of our lives. And so uh, to answer your question, as long as there's going to be people on this earth, uh, we will have at least some dependency and use for pe the petrochemical industry. Representative Patty, so. do, do, you, do you agree with that? Is there something that the legislature can be doing now to be thinking about how to, this, this transition, is, is that even worth a topic of conversation in the legislature? Well, I mean, as, as Chairman Darby said, I mean, obviously we need to be thinking about all these things all the time, but I, I, that's exactly what I was gonna say, is it's not just about the, what, that fuel that you pump into that car, it, it, it affects everything else in that car and lots of other areas of our life as well. And so, uh, you know, I think as a legislature, what, we're, what we tend to be focused on or what we should be focused on is uh, we, we don't like to get too far off in the weeds on, in trying to manipulate, uh, you know, markets and, and, and getting into the business of the economy. Uh, our job, I think, is more to make sure that uh, we get out of the way, that we have a framework that is, that's fair and reasonable that allows the market to work mm -hmm. and uh, let it go wherever the market takes it. And so uh, I think when we're looking at things, we're looking at, you know, are there obstacles, are there, you know, are there barriers to, to innovation and, you know, efficiencies and all of these things? Is there something that we can do to help it along? Uh, it, we should not be involved necessarily in the day-to-day -day of how people run their businesses. Texas, we've been talking a lot about oil and gas, obviously a huge oil producer, huge natural gas producer, enormous wind producer in the country. Um, and the biggest. If, biggest, by far, mm -hmm. um, not even close. And if the numbers that ERCOT, the, the state grid, um, are showing are correct, we're about to be an enormous solar producer as well. Absolutely. That's sort of Absolutely. coming as well. So given that, um, let me ask uh, Commissioner Sitton this, what should we be doing right now? What should the state be doing to encourage, should the state be doing anything to encourage this industry? Should, as, as Representative Patty, if I understand you correct, should just be sort of stepping back and kind of letting, letting the industry, you know, sort of getting out of the way of the industry? What needs to be done right now? When we're, we're, we, we see an oil and gas industry which is not doing great, not certainly not uh, in need of an ambulance, but not doing great, what, what should be done? Well, I think if you ask me what should be done to, to shape the industry from government, I agree completely with Representative Patty. That's not the job of government to do that. Uh, you know, you're going to see lots of instances. Let me give you a very specific one. I own an office complex in Pasadena, and we've had a couple of power uh, issues there. And the, the, the group, our, our management folks have come and said, you know, we ought to install some solar systems here because we get, it's a redundant power system. The businesses that operate here want an alternative or a secondary power system in case we lose uh, power to the buildings in the normal electric grid. So there's a, there right there is a market example where paying the extra money, because it's gonna be more expensive mm -hmm. to install that, Purdue puts an extra layer of electricity there so that the businesses don't get, the down, don't get downtime if they lose you know, grid power. 
you're going to see more and more of that. And if we see technology advance in areas like solar cells and like wind technology, you'll see that those things become a bigger, bigger part of our market. I think the job of government and specifically as a regulator is not to try and force that or nudge that, it is to say when those things happen, is there a need for regulation, right? Is there some, is there, for example, we got a bunch of windmills out there. Are, do we have appropriate regulation on those things or not? I can't answer that today. I'm not an expert in wind power. Same thing on solar, I'm not an expert there. But as those things become more and more prevalent, the questions are, do we have sufficient rules in place to make sure that they are competing in the right ways, that good operators are allowed to thrive, people who try to skirt the rules are taken to task. I mean, that's really the role of government. And I think in Texas, we've done a very good job of that. You, know, you ask the person in Texas, do you believe we should have affordable, reliable, clean energy? Mm -hmm. Everyone says, yes, that's, that's overwhelming. Right. That's, a, that's a nonpartisan issue. Uh, and everybody says, I want to be confident in how that stuff is done. And the legislature sets those policies. It's my job to enforce those policies. And I think on the whole, we've done a very good job. So as we apply that same logic to these non-traditional sources of energy, I think we'll do well. But even in the conventional, uh, conventional oil and gas production, um, you're the regulator. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> is there anything uh, that, that you feel the state could be doing right now to help the industry out, uh, to make sure, you know, any rule changes you'd like to see, to maybe suggest to these guys, anything like that, uh, to, to sort of make sure that the industry can uh, do as well as it, it, it can, I suppose? Well, obviously, we, the industry has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. I right. think that it's hard to really understate that or overstate that. Mm -hmm. you, you've got, you had from 1980s, basically, for about 30 years, the industry was just in a slow, steady decline, or at least pretty flat in the state. From 2008 on, it's just been a constant boom, new technology, new approaches. And we're, we're working hard to keep up with that. So there's a lot of things we can do. We've spent some dollars that the legislature has given us on expanding our technology base, making information more readily accessible to operators, to independent citizens, that's huge. To a guy that says, man, I'm seeing a whole lot more activity in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I'm not in the oil business, I'd like to know what's going on. How nice will it be when he can pull up his cell phone or his mobile device and, and get very easy information about what's happening. That's gonna be a big deal for us. Mm -hmm. uh, making uh, the permit processes quicker, getting more infrastructure in place, things that we think of not necessarily tied directly to oil and gas, but highways. I mean, a lot of the, the parts we use in the industry are shipped on the same roads that people drive to and from work in Houston on. So all those things make the industry pretty strong. I'll say the biggest thing, and, and once again, I give credit to the legislature uh, for, for doing this, uh, advancing programs inside of uh, uh, junior colleges and universities. It is very hard to argue that the Texas uh, higher education program doesn't offer some of the finest education in the energy space today. Meaning that our companies, when they go out and say, I need new expertise and innovative ideas from young people going into this industry, Texas schools do a phenomenal job producing that. So mm -hmm. all those are things we can do. Um, and I'll get very specific on something I know is a, is a topic of a lot of conversation. We're doing a lot of research right now into seismicity. Mm -hmm. This is an area that a lot of people are asking questions about. The legislature uh, put $4.6 million into researching that, more than any other state has done. So we really understand what's happening in that. I'm participating personally in that so that, once again, when people have real questions, we'll be able to answer those, not in a political way, but in a geek way. And I think when we do well, that, we let's do Let's talk really about job. seismicity for a second. And first of all, let's explain just for everyone, to make sure everyone understands what we're talking about. When many of these new wells that are drilled uh, are produced, a lot of salt water comes out along with the oil, gets separated. Uh, and we're talking thousands and thousands, millions of barrels of salt water uh, mm -hmm. being produced. 
something has to happen to that salt water. And often that water is injected back into the earth in the same formation it comes from. Or Me different formation. Or different formation. I think it's fair to say most seismologists believe that that injection is causing earthquakes, is causing swarms of earthquakes. Do you agree that that's true? That, that First oil all, field activity is causing earthquakes? Uh, I think that it is possible that oil field activity causes earthquakes. What you just said I don't think is correct. I don't think okay, that, that the average seismologist say, oh yes, those things cause earthquakes. I think they would say what I'm about to say, in certain areas where you have critically stressed faults, where you have pressure buildup, where you have really high levels of that disposal in those areas, absolutely, those could cause earthquakes. Could cause. And what we've got to do is figure out where it could and where it couldn't. So let me put a very specific example. In the DFW area, there's a lot of confusion about this. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of uptick in seismic events in the Dallas area, in the Irving area, and virtually everyone agrees that cannot be, be caused by disposal wells because there's none close enough to make that happen. Now, we had a SMU study that was on one specific area, one concentrated set of epicenters in the Azel-Reno area. Mm -hmm. That was a different situation, and we're still trying to figure out what we can study more about that and what we can study about other areas of the state. But the confusion has been with people, well, okay, so do disposal wells always cause earthquakes? No. And are all earthquakes caused by disposal wells? No. And that's, that's where I want to make sure we're drawing that distinction. If you ask me today, Ryan, of all the uptick in seismicity around the state, how much of that is even in close enough proximity to potentially be caused by mm -hmm. oil and gas activity? It's like 80% uh, is not. So there's a very small area that we can, that we can actually study. Do you think this is, uh, let, me, let me turn this to, to the state representatives, is this going to be an issue? Um, understanding seismicity, addressing the potential for Absolutely. In, in the session, do you think you'll see bills on this? I don't know if we'll see bills. What well, we, we did see the last session, in fact, we were in session when one of the largest earthquakes occurred at the, in the Azel area. Mm -hmm. uh, the legislature, particularly the Energy Resources Committee, felt as though we should get out ahead on that issue, and it became important from a uh, legislation and from an appropriation standpoint that we deployed enough monitors and, and deployed enough mm -hmm. equipment and had staffing that could analyze that data so that we could answer those questions uh, from a scientific standpoint. So we committed four, four and a half million dollars to fund the Bureau of Economic uh, Geology right. here at UT and uh, we deployed uh, over, over 30 uh, uh, both permanent and mobile arrays to uh, throughout the state of Texas and particularly in the affected area so that we would have the data and let well, let the me data put, drive the discussion well, let me and put not you let on the politics spot. drive we, the we've discussion. Had, we, we've collected data for a couple years now. Do you believe uh, that, that oil and gas related activity is triggering earthquakes in Texas? And is that something that needs to be addressed? Uh, I, I may look pretty smart, <laughs> but I'm going to rely upon the, uh, uh, the seismologist and the scientists that are actually studying that data. My job, my job and, and the commissioner did not mention this, we've got to figure out a way to fund the Railroad Commission. If we've made promises to the public that we are going to defer regulation of below ground activities mm -hmm. to the TCQ and the Railroad Commission, then we have to make sure that those agencies have the funds available to do that. Mm -hmm. We went to a self-funded model to make the agency funded through the industry that it regulated. Mm -hmm. uh, and that works well when we're drilling a lot of wells, but it doesn't work well when there's not a whole What's lot of oil and gas activity. So right now, 
My job is to make sure that the Railroad Commission has enough funds and inspectors mm -hmm. to be able to come up with the real scientific data on what's causing these issues and make sure that they have enough inspectors in the field to inspect uh, wells and environmental, issue, environmental issues well, related let, to Well, let's get wells. down to the bottom line. Are you, do you want to keep the budget uh, where it was the last biennium, increase the size of the budget? What would you like to see happen to the Railroad Commission's budget? Railroad, the Railroad Commission has, quite frankly, uh, uh, through their own uh, activities, reduced personnel costs. They've, they've in, entered into a hiring freeze. They have maintained the, a critical number of inspectors, but the reality is they're operating on millions of dollars of less revenue than what we will anticipated. You make, will, you make, uh, will you make that up? I, you, I, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to have a, a funded agency. You're hearing this? So he's, yes, he's committing. <laughs> well, look, uh, Russell, let me say, this has been, we've had a lot of candid conversation about this in public, in how do we do this to make sure the state is served, um, not, I mean, on all the areas, whether it's pipelines going through somebody's neighborhood, it's a new group of wells outside some urban community. I mean, these are areas that, that we're all working together. We know that's what the people of this state, regardless of how they vote, expect. And, uh, and so we're, we're working together, and, and I, once again, I think we're doing a good job working here. Let me come back to Missy. One last statement. Sure. I, I want to make sure we're clear on this. I am, you know, you, people ask me all the time, Ryan, are you concerned about this? I said, I, I am concerned. I think there are areas of the state mm -hmm. where the risks of seismicity being triggered by oil and gas activities is high. And we're gonna research that, we're gonna find out. And if we find out that there is a connectivity, we're gonna figure out how to regulate that and how to make sure that we minimize those risks. So let me just point out that uh, earlier this month, there was a 5.8 magnitude earthquake in Pawnee, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. felt in Dallas. So yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, a regional issue. So let, let me, I wanna to get to questions in a couple minutes, but let me sort of shift just for a minute. Uh, Minet, let me ask you a question. Uh, let me give you a hypothetical. Uh, Governor Abbott calls you into his office and says, I'm thinking about the future. I'm thinking about the energy future uh, of this state. What would you advise him in terms of how Texas should be positioning itself for 10, 15 years down the road, whether it's, it's oil and gas or whether it's something that former Governor Bush did uh, you know, to get big into wind, uh, I guess in the, in the 90s when he did that. What advice, you know, what, what kind of advice would you, would you give the governor in terms of thinking about what's needed in the future from the energy markets and how Texas can, can, can participate? Okay, hard <laughs> hypothetical hey, here. <laughs> look, you're the past president of the uh, International Association of Energy and Economics. I figured I would. Well, you know, I agree with our legislators um, when the government should not be telling the industry what to do. Okay. So what I would say is, as far as the energy industry goes, again, as was said before, where we use oil and gas is really in transportation now. Mm -hmm. I mean, not anywhere else except for petrochemicals. There's, of course, some there. But, and that's gonna, we're still gonna be using, I think. The infrastructure isn't there for us to make this huge leap to, but it, it's gonna be coming. But what, what the government should do is not to say, okay, this is the loser, this is the winner, whatever but just make sure it's a level playing field going okay. forward and make sure that the regulations are there not to impede the industry, but to sort of make, again, level playing field is what I'd say. So I'm not, so I wouldn't say tell the governor, put your money here or put your money there. Just make sure that it's a competitive field out there. The, the industry will figure out what's best for them. That's mm -hmm. their job. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I'm not uh, into, you know, telling people here's the industry you need to, 
let it be. The markets, let the market be a free market, competitive market. Don't impede it. Don't get and, and the companies will figure out how to how to best deal with it. Is yeah. what I'd say. And yeah. to that point, you know, I know you're going to have a discussion later on on renewables, and mm -hmm. and you're going to talk about wind and solar and all those things, and they're great, and we're doing a lot of great things in Texas there. Uh, you know, that's another good example of we have to be careful about government trying to say, well, we we think this is a really good thing, so we're going to do this, and we're going to. Uh, you know, we're going to subsidize this, you know, subsidize this, do all those things. Let the market work. And, and we've already shown, I mean, take solar, for example, and I've spent a good bit of time here recently uh, looking at that issue. It, it's uh, tremendous activity there, mm -hmm. and, and primarily because they're competing. And, and when I ask them, what do you right. want from government, they say, right now, we just, we're, we're ready to compete. Just make sure no one throws up any barriers well, uh, to just, prevent us from being Let me do this skunk in the garden party for a second, because you're talking about government getting out of the way of the free market, but I would argue that the most successful policy in Texas over the last 20 years in terms of promoting energy growth was the subsidization of the Cres lines. Absolutely. Building out these giant transmission lines out to West Texas, which created just thousands of, of, of new opportunities. So, you know, it's, it's, you, you don't have to look very far into the past of Texas to see a, an example of the state uh, through its ratepayers, subsidizing infrastructure growth and getting large returns. You're from San Angelo. You must see Ab these absolutely. All the time. Uh, you know, I, I voted on that that uh, initiative when it came before the House. Uh, obviously, that was an eight billion dollar commitment on behalf of the uh, state. But the reality is that's being paid by the ratepayers <laughs> here that's in right. the state. So the people of Texas are paying that. It's yeah. included in their. Uh, electric bills, but what it's done, of course, is create a framework for the development of renewables throughout uh, West and North Texas. Now, quite frankly, those lines go through my district. Mm -hmm. They are site blight. Uh, they scar up the land. They take property away from landowners. Uh, so there's a there's a balancing, if you will, between a public need and and private property rights. But overall, the decision was made, if this state is going to move forward, we have to make that infrastructure available for development. My greatest fear at the end was if we did not have any projects at the end. We build the lines and right. nothing is at the end of the lines. Well, that's, yeah, that, that fear was not, uh, did not uh, come to fruition. But, I mean, but, but you know, again, it, 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 was, it was couched upon uh, various techniques, such as a 313 tax abatement, that incentivized, incentivized the development of those projects. Mine, I think you wanted to say something. Yeah, I just something. want to Let's add something. So we were talking about oil and gas, right? Mm -hmm. But there are certain goods, as an economist, you know, they're called public goods. So mm -hmm. public goods are goods where the benefits are more than just to the to the to the company that's doing it. Infrastructure is one of those. The grid lines are one of those. So when you have a public good, then you do have to have a different way of funding it. Okay. But you were talking about oil and gas industry, which is purely yeah. private. Gotcha. Okay. All right, so let's see. Um, I think we have um, microphones on the aisles, and so uh, if, instead of raising your hand, if you want to ask questions, just get up and sort of form a line behind these. Um, why don't we start over here on my right, stage left, and do you want to okay. introduce yourself quickly and um, ask questions? I'm Mary Kay Hansen. I live in Austin. And, uh, but anyway, um, mine is, my questions are to do with the budget. And Mr. Kura, how much does, uh, your budget, is it affected because of the lower price at the pump? That certainly makes people, or gives people in Texas more money to spend. And how much does that figure in? And also the number of people moving into Texas, how, how much does all of that offset what we're losing on gas and oil? 
Um, so to some extent, if, if people take savings they, they have at, at the pump and spend it on other things, that will be reflected in our sales tax. Right. Um, we haven't seen a lot of that. Really? Yeah, I mean, there's some, um, but you know, people may be saving the money, they may be, uh, in some cases, and this is, um, I, I don't understand this at all, people are spending on more expensive gas <laughs> when gas is less expensive, <laughs> um, uh, which kind of baffles me. But um, so you know, but to some extent, yes. If people have more discretionary income, they'll spend it on things that will show up in our sales tax. It's not been enough to offset the downturn in the industry. Okay. You know, um, there are a couple things to keep in mind. Um, you know, the industry buys expensive equipment that they pay sales tax on, um, and when they're not buying that equipment, they're not paying that sales tax. Um, they also have relatively high wages, I mean much higher than the average wage in that industry. And so when they're laying people off, that's a lot of less income. Okay, and the, but with other people moving here, that's And that, that does contribute to okay. economic growth and, and revenue growth. Yeah, and, I, and to do with the budget, I, uh, for um, Representative Darby and, and uh, Patty, I just, uh, you talked about Medicaid and everything. Well, I've heard that the federal government would help us out on Medicaid if, uh, if that was a question in our budget. Um, do you want to respond to that either? <laughs> 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 I, mean, I, I generally I, I, yield to the chairman on it. All right, okay. Uh, you know, thank you. Yeah. Um, and thank you for asking a question. I appreciate that. Just to encourage everyone to ask a question of the panelists and not um, um, give a, a speech. Yes, sir. Oil and gas future sales, uh, supply demand. Do you see a different future for oil versus natural gas looking ahead? I'll speak to that. I think if we're talking about commodity prices specifically, yeah. Uh, we have a lot of natural gas in this country, and uh, you see some very prolific production, especially up in the Marcellus area, which mm -hmm. is Pennsylvania. So I think that gas prices are going to be low for a longer period of time than oil is. I think that the ability to move uh, oil products into other markets, the ability, once again, the, the downturn in, in oil production around the world, the amount that we import and how much that changes, all those have different impacts on oil markets regionally than gas. We basically use all the gas, all the gas we use here, we produce here. So when the market here is flooded with gas, that's going to keep a low gas price for a while. You'll even see some indicators of that. You know, Shell, which has been very public in their downsizing mm -hmm. in other areas, is continuing to build a four or five billion dollar petrochemical plant up in Pennsylvania, leveraging the fact that we've got all that natural gas. So we, we expect that natural gas prices uh, are going to be low for a while. And I'm not talking 10 years, but uh, if my prediction on oil is you know, next year we're going to see $60 a barrel, I think we're probably three years out-ish or more before we see any sustained higher gas prices of note. I'll, I'll take and the other I'll side of that uh, bet, by the way. I think we're around <laughs> three years. Uh, but and interestingly enough, the most recent large discovery was announced out in uh, the Fort Davis Mountains, giant gas discovery. Yeah. 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 Once, once again, we yeah, found so more gas. Let uh, me add something to that, yes, can I? Yes, ma'am. Um, so one different um, thing in the two markets is that the gas market as um, Ryan said is, is a domestic market, but the oil market is not. It's really a global market. So our production um, is affected by prices from outside. It's, it, the pricing is global for gas. It's really, we are starting to you know, export LNG and so on, but it's much smaller portion of what we produce. The one thing I'd say with high gas price, I mean high oil prices is that when you start producing more oil, there's gonna be more associated yeah. gas coming with it. And that's gonna dampen gas prices going forward. Yeah, can I just, just as a, 
an interesting note. Um, you know, we talk about the U.S. sort of being a self-contained market, but we're exporting a lot more to natural Mexico. gas to Mexico, specifically through pipeline, uh, than we ever have in the past. So it's really becoming more of a regional market. Uh, yes, sir, let's go to a question over here. Good morning. My name is Scott Airy. Uh, I'm a retired 25-year Army officer who chose to live here in this state. And I tell you that so you don't dismiss my next uh, questions as, as some ultra-left-wing uh, crazy questions. Um, I own a solar installation company, um, a former chair of the Texas Solar Energy Society. And I've often said that Texas has four great natural energy resources, oil, gas, wind, and solar. And of course, the, the conversation here has really been mostly on the first two. And I've long suspected that's mostly because there is no severance tax on a gust of wind or a photon. And in the end, it all comes back to paying the bills. But when will Texas start making maybe an adjustment in its paradigm of where the future energy economy might be? For example, when we're uh, the Denton anti-fracking rule, when will the state perhaps take that up regarding solar installations and, and some of these anti-solar uh, measures being taken in some North Texas cities? For the Railroad Commission, we've talked about mobile phone apps. When will homeowners and property owners get that same phone app, maybe not for a natural gas rig, but for the solar potential of their property? And for the budget estimator, I'd ask, when are we going to start acknowledging the potential economic impact of tax credits retained so federal tax dollars don't go to Washington, D.C., but stay here because of the, the uh, solar uh, incentives? Okay, we have about three questions there. Let, let's, <laughs> let's start with this question. Um, look, we have the, the chair and the vice chair of energy resources. Should there be a bill, will one of you carry a bill, to try to address this, the, the, the uh, homeowners association, if I'm mistaken, that put up barriers to putting um, solar panels. Should, should a Texan be allowed to put a solar panel on his or her roof if, if, uh, if that's what they want? Well, you know, that's, that will obviously be a topic of discussion as we move forward in the next session. And I think the debate, the debate should be is, to, is there an overall greater good to be achieved uh, uh, by lowering those barriers or uh, again, uh, you know, House Bill 40 was uh, attacked as being uh, anti-local control. It was really more about asserting the state's preeminence in regulating the, the natural resource uh, that we have in this state and private property rights. And so, you know, I'm a big private property rights guy, and, and the, the reality is if homeowners uh, can, uh, in the least obtrusive manner, uh, find a way to establish an alternative power supply and actually contribute something back to the grid, I'm open to, the, to that discussion. I do think there needs to be discussion. I think it's part of a greater discussion on what I would term soft costs that are associated with, with solar and wind. We're, we need to look at, you know, are there barriers you know, in the permitting process and, and a lot of those different areas, are there things that we need to look at that are, that are causing issues uh, with that? But, uh, you know, and it's not just about putting something on your roof as well. Uh, in a lot of areas, if you look around the country, uh, it's community solar where mm -hmm. you'll see areas where you know you have spaces that are developed. Maybe they're, they're brownfield areas or greenfield areas where you have these little solar farms and then a community feeds from that. They don't necessarily have a panel on their roof. And so I think there are ways that the issue can be resolved. Uh, it's just going to take folks thinking a little differently because it's, it is relatively new for, for folks in a lot of ways. And just, you know, I was out in Pecos County a few months ago, and there, there are places in Pecos County you can stand, and you've got the, the old historic Gates oil field behind you. Uh, you've got uh, turbines up on the ridges, and then you've got a brand new util utility-scale solar going up in the valley. So there are places where it's all coexisting. Um, yes, sir. Hi, my name's Corey. Um, I represent an environmental advocacy group here in Texas. Um, 
the Sunset Commission, and this is um, to the legislators and to Ryanson, um, they found, uh, their staff found that the Railroad Commission cannot demonstrate the effectiveness of its oil and gas enforcement program, um, that it was, that last year it only enforced 16% uh, of oil and gas violations at the wellhead um, out of 60,000 violations. Um, so my question is, how can lawmakers, particularly Sunset um, uh, Commissioners, um, justify an inept regulatory framework that fosters lawlessness in the drilling industry and claim no deep changes need to be made, as is the case right now. Why don't you address the oh. <laughs> that? I was, I was wondering. wondering. He was talking about your commission. I know. Uh, well, first of all, the, the numbers that you quoted there were out of context. So let me. But directly from the report. Yes, which, but you got to put them in context. So the 60,000 violations that were there, many of those were things like signage. And if an inspector goes out there and says, hey, you're supposed to have this sign on there. I saw that you didn't have that sign, uh, and I'm going to write you up for an administrative violation. The guy comes back out three months later, signs still has been replaced, write you up for that violation again. So if our guys didn't go out and actually pull a P5 or tell an operator that you're going to have to make some change to your operation that showed up in that report as two different quote unquote, unenforced violations for administrative things in which it, if you ask me, Ryan, is that where the people of the state want us to be spending our dollars and our resources to go out and make sure that these type of rules are followed? No, I don't think that's what we want to do. Now, penalties are revenue for you though. Well, they can be, but once again, if you ask me that, is that, is that in the interest of the state? Do I want to go out and be making sure that that's where operators are spending their time on those sort of administrative things? No, people want safe operations. So if you start parsing that list down to the things that are hey, you're, you have not brought your wells into compliance with our downhole rules. Those we absolutely enforce. Those are the guys who we, we do pull their P5s. We do shut down their operations. So we, we take those very, very seriously. And I think that those big numbers are easy to throw out. But then when you start looking at the much smaller list of ones that we consider to be, I don't want to use the word serious violation, but ones that, that have risk, real risks to communities or, or uh, operations associated with them, then we take those much, we, we take care of every single one of those. Now let me direct the question uh, to, to the representatives. Um, are, can you commit right here on this stage to making sure that there is at least the same number of inspectors um, at the Railroad Commission, or, or should we even increase the number of inspectors uh, given everything that's going on in, in the state right now? You, you know, I can't, I, I can't sit here today and say that we have the right level of inspectors at the Railroad Commission. My pledge to you and to the people of this audience and the people of the state is that discussion will be had as we move forward in the next budget cycle. Do you have the right number of enforcement officers to protect the, uh, the people of Texas, landowners, and the process? What's your, does your gut tell you we have too many or too few? Uh, my gut tells me that uh, in, in, in light of their revenue stream that uh, I hope they have maintained, I've been led to believe that they have maintained their level of inspectors. They have cut back into other aspects of their operations in order to meet the cash flow challenge that they have. Were, were you concerned about what the Sunset Commission said? Uh, the, 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 uh, the Sunset Commission uh, staff is just that. They are staff mm -hmm. and uh, we will go through that report in detail, I promise you, as will the Sunset Commission, and we will arrive at a decision that we think is in the best interest of the state and of the agency that we're charged to protect. I think he's going to be keeping an eye on you on that. I bet he does. I bet he does. I've seen Corey several times. Uh, real, quickly, real quickly, because I want to get... One of the other recommendations in the Sunset Report was that we need to do a better job qualifying 
our violations because of this same confusion. Then another one that said, look, you need to help identify which ones are major violations and how do you handle those because of this same level of confusion. So we are taking steps and we've talked we're, to those. We're almost out of time. I think we have one more question I wanted to get to and, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Hi, um, good morning. I'm Carolyn Ramirez. I'm a senior chemical engineering student here at UT. Um, Good for a job, because we are hiring people at the railroad commission. <laughs> <laughs> well, hook em horns to you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> hey, we're <laughs> Still taking applications. <laughs> um, so my question is kind of about engineering ethics and government ethics surrounding the energy industry. So I think we're all pretty aware of some allegations against a huge oil giant, ExxonMobil, about climate change. Um, that they denied a lot of the research they did back in the 70s and kind of pivoted their entire stance on climate change in the 80s. And kind of um, them, and I think they're honestly just the first scapegoat of many to be investigated, um, that they kind of held back a lot of progressive um, research that could have been done to stop climate change. Because I feel like we're kind of at a place where we can say it's real, it's science. Um, so. I guess my question to y'all is from a state government perspective, what can we do to prevent these kind of like decades of a lack of progress around environmental and ethical issues surrounding the energy industry? Like seismicity, for example, it's a huge issue that people talk about with fracking and, and drilling. Um, how can we make sure that we're not losing sight of those kind of safety and environmental health concerns um, that are kind of overshadowed by profit? Sean? Sure. Uh, well, I appreciate the way you asked that question, and I think uh, the seismicity is a good example. What we need to do is keep those discussions out of the political dialogue. In other words, not that it shouldn't be talked about in politics or in elected office, but one of the things I think we've seen in climate change is it's become such a hyper-political discussion that the ability to have a real detailed conversation about it has, been, has become very, very difficult. Um, you know, in seismicity, we're, once again, I applaud the legislature saying we're going to put more dollars in research on this topic than any state has. We're out there working with CISR, with the BEG, even working with people outside the state to better learn and understand this issue so that when we start talking about what we find and what we're going to do and what regulation look like, people say, look, at the end of the day, that was just a, that was just a bunch of geeks doing what geeks do. That's, that's when we are at our best. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, like I said, climate change hasn't gone there, and I think what you see in climate change is everybody takes a very hardcore back against the wall type of position. Either it's absolutely every bit of climate change is caused by hydrocarbons, or people say, no, absolutely none of it's caused by hydrocarbons. None of it's man-made. And look, all of us out there know climate change is a fact. It's happening. It's all of us know, I can tell you, as a, me, a human being sitting here, I'm causing climate change. The question is, how much of it are we causing? How much of it's caused by specifically oil and gas? How much is it caused by other, you know, by cows? I mean, there's a lot of questions about what different things cause climate change. And it's unfortunate that the scientific levels of that discussion have become, you, it's hard to get to those because it's become so politicized. So my hope is that we do a better job, and by the way, this is all elected officials, of talking about this not in the language of politics, we're talking about language of science. Okay, what do we know? And what things do we not know? And for the things that we do know, what, what level of risk does that pre present? I was talking to the climatologist at Texas A&M University uh, not a year ago, talking about the fact that there are some of the things that if, in his, in his statement, if you believe that every single bit of it was caused by mankind, some of it, if you believe that, is then irreversible. And so there's no point in talking about changing some of those things by, by, by limiting these activities. What else can we do? Thinking outside the box of just, just control of these activities. So I, I like the fact he takes a very scientific approach, um, and he is, and I think, that, once again, that's how we can answer this is really 
staying on topic of what does the science tell us and how do we manage that? Well, it's a great question. Unfortunately, we, we're over time right now. So I want to take moderator's uh, prerogative for, for one last comment, and that is that if climate change, if carbon is regulated, um, more even so than it is right now, I suspect Texas will be a net winner because it's got the natural gas, it's got wind, it's got solar. Um, but that's just, you know, and, and there, there's research into that. So I want everyone to join me in thanking our panel for our very interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.